Linking Hands by Christina Hartman One afternoon in December 2020, I sat at my kitchen table and weighed my options for my upcoming interview with Richard McGann. As deaf-blind people who communicate best through touch, we needed to meet in person. Not a simple proposition during a global pandemic that had made everything untouchable. It had been over four months since Richard and I had last talked, his big hands on my small ones, and now I had to figure out how to reach him. Richard lives in Brookline, a 20-minute drive from my house in Lawrenceville, but neither one of us drives. A bus ride takes over an hour with multiple transfers. Paratransit services have limited availabilities and long waits. The rumors of Uber drivers going maskless made me wary of using the ride-hailing app. All of the above options involved a high risk of COVID exposure, and Richard is over 60. So, I did something I hate doing. I asked my boyfriend for a ride. Richard and I usually chatted during the monthly DB get-togethers, which had been suspended during the pandemic. It was at one of those gatherings in February 2018 that I first met Richard. That evening, I entered the Pittsburgh Association of the Deaf, PAD, in Uptown, new to the city and deaf blindness. The smell of savory oxtail soup lingered in the air and movement filled the room as hands shifted on top of each other. Word got out that there was a newcomer and hands slipped under mine to ask where I was from and what had brought me to Pittsburgh. Richard's friend guided me to a seat next to him, and he introduced himself with his trademark sweeping, almost flamboyant movements. He was a lifelong Pittsburgher and a community advocate who had retired from the Western Pennsylvania School for Blind Children, where he taught DB children communication skills. I didn't want to retire, he said, his hands splaying outward. I could have kept working. He handed me a business card that proclaimed him as the DB Godfather. You need something? You ask me, he said. Confused? I asked, like what? Anything, he said. You have a problem? You ask me. There was a big problem to discuss when I tapped my way to Richard's house. The sudden suspension of support service providers, SSP services, in fall 2020. It didn't take long for Richard to open the door after I rang the doorbell, and he pulled me in for a hug. He led me through a tidy house that he has lived in since 1988, first with his wife and now alone after his wife passed away in 2001. We sat down in his darkened kitchen, chairs pulled close so our hands could touch, and we could talk about the SSP program that gave us access to the city. Support service providers, more casually known as SSPs, go by multiple names, such as co-navigators or interveners. Whatever the label is, the goal is the same, to enable a DB person to move through a society designed for the hearing sighted. SSPs convey visual information using tactile communication so that a DB person can make their own choices. Richard calls them our eyes and ears, 
a necessity in a world with few Braille labels and even fewer people familiar with tactile communication. Most DB people use SSPs to perform everyday activities like shopping, filling out paperwork, locating doctor offices, and labyrinthine medical complexes, attending social gatherings, and community events. In 2014, Pennsylvania established its first statewide SSP program that wasn't tethered to employment, opening up the services to more people, retirees, those unable to work, and those, like me, working outside of the VR, Vocational Rehabilitation System. The program gave DB Pennsylvanians 10 hours with a trained SSP, 10 hours they didn't have to justify to a counselor or have to beg for. Before the program's inception, many DB Pennsylvanians depended on friends and family to perform errands and attend social functions. Richard, who volunteered as an SSP before his sight declined to the point where he needed one himself, captured the anxiety and fear of never knowing when you could next go to the grocery store or the doctor. Always, always worried, Richard shifted uncomfortably. Both of us knew the uneasy feeling of being beholden to others. Richard expressed gratitude to friends and family who pitched in when needed. I have to be patient, he said, referring to the times when others postponed their plans or canceled altogether. The odd feeling of uncomfortable gratitude was one I knew well. On the day of the interview, my boyfriend asked if we could postpone the ride. Something had come up at work. I agreed because it would be churlish not to, putting aside my desire to go earlier. My schedule was no longer my own, and that was only one consequence of dependency. I rationed my needs and wants to fit others' schedules and moods. I timed my request for the elusive moment when my family or friends weren't stressed or busy, a moment so rare that I ended up postponing my request or even forfeiting them altogether. Prescriptions went unfilled. My signature dish, spaghetti with bolognese sauce, never got made because I didn't have all of the ingredients. Social events weren't even on the calendar. That would be asking too much. I could feel myself shrink a little each day. We also had to worry about exploitation. I heard hand murmurs about people to avoid throughout the Pittsburgh DB community. People who pretended to help but only harmed. A man grinned as he guided a DB woman, the joke being that he was wearing a vulgar t-shirt and the woman had no idea. A woman refused to allow a DB man to buy a product that she found objectionable. A volunteer stole a DB man's pingo, Pittsburgh-style bingo winnings, which he allowed because she was his ride home. It was a bargain many had to make, subject oneself to the caprices of charity or stay home. And these were the privileged ones. Some didn't have the friends or family to make that bargain. The pilot program changed that. It introduced a measure of accountability and reliability into DB people's lives and gave access to those without a support network. 
or it did until September 16, 2020. An email appeared in my inbox with the subject line in all caps, Please read, Services are ending. The coordinator explained that the funding had not been renewed that year and services would end in two weeks. She apologized but couldn't give any answers. A flurry of emails followed. Many asked why this was happening and worried about how they would get food during the pandemic. A man wrote, Does the agency make fun of abandoned deaf-blind without food in the kitchens? Richard's fingers flicked into my hands, telegraphing his anger and fear. Terrible, was how he summed up the news. But he added that he was helping an agency secure emergency funding. We still felt shaken and dejected. It was more than the program's end that rattled us. It was the lack of communication. We were being cut off from our communities, and nobody was telling us why. Richard has won several awards for his work as an advocate, so when I asked him what his proudest moment was, I expected something practical, like a new program or funding for an old one. I was wrong. Richard's fingers rose into a steeple as he declared, setting up the WPADB, his crowning achievement. The Western Pennsylvania Association of the Deaf-Blind, WPADB, was Pittsburgh's first DB social club, operating from 1988 to 1994. In addition to gathering support from local deaf and blind organizations, Richard and his late wife Karen collected funds from donations and bake sales to charter a bus for the 20-odd DB members scattered throughout the Pittsburgh metropolitan area. They congregated in a basement to chow down, gossip, and make merry, hands draped over one another. The good times came to an end when venue issues forced the WPADB to shut down. It returned in 2012 as DB Gatherings. This time around, however, the DB had to arrange their own transportation. Richard's recollections of schmoozing in the Lions Club basement and Uptown reminded me of our need to connect with one another. Social connection, the experience of feeling close and connected to others, is a universal human need. Transportation and communication barriers put DB people at a high risk of social isolation. Big problem, Richard said. Many DB only stay at home. It's not good for them. The pandemic has taught the general population something that we DB already know. Isolation can erode our bodies and minds. Once lockdown started, the media warned of higher rates of depression and health problems as we all detached from one another. Science confirms this. Studies report the ravages of social isolation on our bodies, heart disease and poor sleep, and our minds, depressive symptoms and increased anxiety. A growing body of research shows similar symptoms among many DB. Isolation might account for some of the behaviors Richard describes. Some DB don't want to learn Braille or tactile communication. Lack of motivation, one of the hallmarks of depression, creates a vicious cycle of deepening isolation. But it does not have to be this way. 
Richard has found many ways to connect with others. A Steelers loyalist and a Monster Jam rally fan, he follows scores and updates with his refreshable Braille device. Whenever possible, he goes to games and rallies with an SSP who describes the glorious touchdowns and spectacular truck crashes and tactile ASL. He also watches his extensive DVD collection and movies and theaters via tactile interpreters, goes to church, and reads books. When Richard joins in with the cheering crowds at sporting events and partakes in cultural activities like movies and books, he becomes a part of the greater social fabric. I experienced the powerful feeling of human connection in June 2020 when I participated in a Black Lives Matter ASL video. As we walked to the East Liberty Rally, my SSP described the scene, the tall buildings dwarfing a crowd of people wearing black and a woman giving an emotional speech about her dead son. My SSP's hands twisted under mine as we walked alongside the other protesters, telling me how everyone moved in harmony. Her descriptions made the social justice movement tangible in a way no newspaper article could, and I felt the most connected to my community at that moment. When most people talk about livable cities, they talk about bike lanes or affordable housing, but rarely about social connection. Perhaps Richard's more holistic view comes closer to what the term really means. More access to television, shopping, books, and friends. His index fingers hooked together in the ASL word for friend, a visual and tactile manifestation of one of our most basic needs, human connection. As our interview ended, Richard and I waited outside in the cold for my ride home, his large hand clasping mine. We didn't know when we would meet next or what lay in our future. The uncertainty remains today. The SSP program subsists on unreliable emergency funding, and a bill that would guarantee funding languishes in the legislature. When my boyfriend's car pulled up to the curb, Richard patted my shoulder and told me to keep in touch. With that, our hands parted. Richard McGann responds to linking hands. I have enjoyed what Christina has written. She gives visual concepts, and this sows more creativity. In many ways, deafblind people are multicultural, no matter where we come from, as we grow up in the hearing world, blind world, deaf world, and dual sensory world. There are numbers of deafblind people coming from deaf culture, other deafblind coming from blind culture. As we mix them together, we see how sensitive some deafblind feel as they become concerned and overreact to what someone says to them. Some may believe it is drama, but it's not. There are a number of deafblind people feeling that they are being judged. I encourage deafblind to be more open, not to be too serious, and not to be too concerned about what people think. Still, I would like for the public to be more open and show more eagerness to make deafblind people more comfortable. But remember that generations are different. The older generation is dying, and the younger generation is coming up. And I predict that another younger generation 
will overtake the young generation later. As with the Catholic churches, Vatican I, Vatican II, and soon Vatican III. Similarly, many older deaf, blind, and blind people don't like new Braille code, which was adopted in 2012 by BANA, the Braille Authority of North America, because older people don't always like new techniques, while the young generation is starting to adjust to the new changes in the code, and later generations will be even more skilled and maybe will go on to create new updated codes. As a Catholic, I do recall the old days before Vatican II. Vatican II brought timely changes, but many older priests and nuns were upset and tried to tell us not to follow the new rules. Eventually, priests and nuns changed and taught us and tried to encourage us to be more open to new ways. We see the same idea in relation to racism. Yes, I confess, my father did use N-word in the past, but later came a new sensitivity to the word and a new understanding of the need for acceptance. New generations are bringing black and white people together, like my second cousins having children who are biracial. For me, we are multiracial because in the Bible, it is said that, at first, everyone spoke only one language. Our ancestors were curious to see what earth looked like from God's point of view, so they built their tower. God asked them what they were doing, and they said they were curious about what earth looked like to God and wanted to meet God up in the air. God crushed the tower, and then everyone was divided into groups that spoke different languages. There are 8 billion people around the world. There are 125 languages to speak. How is it possible that God can follow all kinds of languages like this? I think the only true language is body language. When you fold your hands together and kneel down, God comes closer to you and listens.